Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and to honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me as we come before God's word this morning. Holy God, we give you thanks for your word that you give to us, your people. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that your spirit would work in us and through us by the power and the presence of your word this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen. You know, uh, a conversation that I end up having often with some of you and and others is uh, about the state of our current world. because it feels chaotic, and people struggle with the, the, the chaotic nature of it. It feels like we're a, a ship without a, a rudder, that we're being tossed about a storm. You know, from, a, from living in a, in a culture like ours, which has given itself over to the spirit of our age, that you know, we can create our, our own story, our own truths to, to live by, even if that denies all sorts of bi- biological realities. Like there's no boundaries in this world for us to a political landscape that has seemingly become engulfed in self-promotion and personal gain and all kinds of evil and corruption, to growing, uh, to this land, kind of growing cultural attacks on the church. Uh, Many are worried, maybe some of you are worried about our current moment in history. Uh, And it's easy for us when things are chaotic and, and turbulent, it's easy for us to grow fearful. 
and fearful of what might uh, become of us, fearful of the powers of this world and what they might do to us. And you know, one thing to remember is that this moment is actually not unique to us. In fact, when you, when you look across the, the history of the world, the history of the, ch- the, the church, this is actually a reoccurring motif for us. Christianity has always had a way of ebbing and flowing in and out of popularity, uh, and especially within the public square. And now we're in a downward trend, but this is not new. And yet even in those downward trends, uh, there is this truth that Christianity continues to do what it always has done, is that it actually always continues to grow. Uh, it always continues to spread. How, how is this possible? How does something that is, can be hated by so many people uh, grow? How, how did the early church, which Revelation was written to, how did they not just survive the torture that was coming before them, but actually grow through it? How did they not lose hope in the midst of chaos around them? How do we not lose hope? Ultimately, I think it's by hearing the message of, of our future glory that's found in Revelation. You know, this, this book that we've been going through, this is our, our last Sunday in it until next summer, but Revelation as a whole comes to people that I believe are asking many of these same questions. Like, they're suffering, they're being persecuted, and they're having to endure. Like one of the primary messages throughout Revelation is endure, right? Hold on, hold fast. They were struggling people. They needed encouragement. They needed to hear that their suffering was not in vain. So they could remain and endure until the end. You know, remember, you know, Revelation is first and foremost concerned. It was written to a people in the first century. It's first and primarily concerned with the events of the first century. And the church is about to suffer insane tribulation from death, beatings, imprisonment. The temple is about to be destroyed. Their world is about to get turned upside down. Revelation is, as one commentator says, a book meant to prepare the church for martyrdom. Revelation is a book that's meant to prepare the church for martyrdom. Pretty encouraging start to this sermon. Um, But as we come to Revelation 4 this morning, we come to the beginning of the second uh, vision of the book. And this this vision takes up most of Revelation. It, It begins here. And this chapter, I think, begins a section which I think plays a central role in helping to strengthen the church for what's to come. Helping them see beyond their their present circumstances and struggles because it shows John, it shows the early church and shows us a glimpse into heaven. A world made right. A world that is actually descending to earth. It's a vision of what awaits us and you know what better encouragement is there for us to hold on, uh, to endure, uh, than a, a picture of the future. Um, I mean, how do we endure any hardship? What's well, the reward of what's to come after it? Right? How, do you, how, do you, how do you survive a, a hard workout? Well, you know that this workout is not going to last for forever. Uh, how did I endure going fabric shopping with my mom as a child? The promise of ice cream at the end. You know, how do we endure any hardship in life? It's, it's what the promise of what's on the other side of it. And this chapter is for us, reminding us of our deep hope reminding us to hold on. How can we continue to have hope in a world that's insane? How can we hold on to hope when sin and brokenness has infested our lives? Because of the hope that awaits you. And it's not just an idea, it's not just a nicety, it is a place that we call heaven. And it's a place that is real, that's descending to earth even now. And this is what I think Revelation 4 begins to point our hearts to, point us to, remind us of. 
And I think there's, there's, there's two things in this vision of heaven that I think we're gonna see. And they're these. First of all, that Jesus invites us to see the hope of heaven. He wants us to gaze upon this world that is to come. And secondly, Jesus invites us to join the worship of heaven. So first, Jesus invites us to see the hope of heaven. Look with me back here at verses one and two. It says, after this I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what may take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold a, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so this is the beginning of this, this second vision, right? He's in the spirit again. And remember from the first chapter, the, the trumpet-like voice that he's referring to, that's, that's Jesus' voice. So Jesus is speaking to him again, speaking to John, giving him these, this vision, and he, he invites them into heaven. It's kind of cool scene. He kind of gets whisked up into the clouds through a door that opened, and he, now he's actually up in heaven. Uh, and so why does, why does Jesus do this? Why is Jesus bringing John uh, into heaven? Why is he whisking him up into the clouds? Well, he says it right here. He says, come up here. Why? and I will show you what must take place after this. So if you remember, in chapter one, uh, Jesus tells John to write down the things that are and those that are to take place after this. Well, this vision is, is about those, the future things, those things that are gonna take place after this. And to a suffering church, to a persecuted church, this is the vision that Jesus shows them to encourage them. An invitation to a grand vision of hope and I think this vision of hope, and as we walk through this, I think what we'll see is that it actually answers all their likely fears that they're facing in their day-to-day -day life. And I think the first fear that is addressed for them is that of rule. Look at the first thing that he notices as he, as he goes up there. The first thing he, he looks and he sees, he beholds, is a throne. The throne and the one sitting on it. We know from future chapters, this is Jesus. He's sitting on that throne. What are thrones for? Well, thrones are for rulers. They're for kings, right? And for people who fear the, the rulers and kings of the current regime in, in Rome, this is their assurance that, that they will not be on the throne forever, but Christ will, right? The future begins with Christ seated on his throne, ruling. That is what is to come. Secondly, the, 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 the vision moves in verse three to this, and it says this, and he sat there, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. One of the things uh, that we always need to remember is that he is saying what the things look like. It doesn't mean this is actually what they are. For instance, if I said, you know, these curtains, they look like uh, mustard on a hot dog on a hot summer day. You know, that doesn't mean they actually are mustard right, on a hot dog on a hot summer day, although now everyone wants it hot dog with mustard on a hot summer day. So, so he's just kind of comparing, uh, he's putting into words in his own language, that which he sees. And so um, when, when you come to, to something like this, like colors, as you can imagine, in the book of Revelation, there's lots of debate. What do these colors mean? What are they referencing? Um, and I think even oftentimes, whenever you come to some of the debates in Revelation, uh, it's, it's typically not even an either or situation when trying to interpret these things. Usually, there's a both and happening. It's just what's first and what's second. I think that, that these colors pointing that, that, that Jesus looks like, I think what they're ultimately are pointing to or referencing is the breastplate of the high priest in ancient Israel, which he would have had 12 stones represent the 12 tribes uh, on, his, on his breastplate. And the high priestly job is, is what? It's to mediate grace and mercy and forgiveness to a people. 
right? And his people who are precious like stones. It's like they're written on his heart. They're on his mind. He who is on the throne, Jesus, our great high priest, our kingly priest, is mediating grace to his people. I think this idea is actually further cemented in the next image you see uh, in this allusion to Noah in the rainbow. Um, you know, there's, this, there's a covenant connection being made here. You know, and in the covenant uh, that God made with Noah after the flood, God promised what? That he would, he would hang his bow in the sky. Literally, it's his, his war bow, his, his instrument of wrath. He would hang in the sky and not destroy the earth again. And what this image in heaven shows us is that wherever God goes, the light of the rainbow follows. He can't help but look through rainbow-colored lenses when he looks at his creation. His memorial promise before him. He is merciful. He's kind. So what does this mean for this people? Well, it means that the world, although teetering on the edge of destruction... A world that's causing them great fear and anxiety, this world will be preserved and blessed through the intercession of our great high priest. God has not forgotten his promises. God never forgets his promises, no matter how bad things are, no matter how bad things look. The Lord never forgets his promises. His grace remains. A powerful future hope will come to pass. The world will be made new similar to how it was made new after the, after the flood. But this world that's being born again now is one with no sin, no capacity to sin. One where God's people are ruling like they were meant to rule. And this is what we see next here in verse four. It says this, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So what are these elders about? Ultimately, I think this is, I think there's a lot of different references happening here, but ultimately I think what these 24 elders and thrones are pointing to is the, the fullness of God's people, his church, right? You have 12 tribes in Israel, you have uh, 12 disciples, 12 and 12 is 26, no, 24, right? Um, just making sure you guys are paying attention. All right, 24, math, it's hard. 12, 12 is not that hard. Um, so, you get this, so you get this picture of the fullness of God's people there in heaven, ruling, uh, on, seated on thrones, clothed in white. They're made priestly. This is an amazing future for these people. It's not death. Their future is not death. Their future is not suffering. Their future is dressed in white with crowns adorning their heads, seated on thrones, ruling besides their great King Christ. Right, right now, what these people are experiencing is, is a, the thrones of the world crushing them, Right? Uh, but Jesus invites them to see that which is to come, right? Jesus is calling them out of the, the, the fear to the land of heaven where their hope is seen. Our future actually happens in heaven first. And the fact that they're seeing this means that it is true and it will come to earth as it is in heaven, that they will one day sit on thrones. Um, you know, and there's a, a lot of different aspects and intricacies of this movement that we can get into. I do want to uh, take a personal privilege and point out two interesting things about this idea of, of elders here. Uh, and for one, um, it's the word for elder here is presbyteros. And, uh, and there's a pl plurality to this word. I mean, it's, for one, it's, it's where we actually get our denominational name, Presbyterian from, is from the word elder in the Greek. Um, but uh, this word, when it's used, is always used in the plural. Meaning that, you know, there's a, there's a plurality of, of elders that, that lead and govern God's people. Um, there's never just one human set in charge of 
of the church. It's always a, a plurality, which is how we govern and rule. Even in our church, there's a plurality of elders. Um, you know, uh, which is good because whenever there is just one human in charge of other humans, uh, it usually doesn't end well. Eventually, corruption uh, will come in. Plurality of leadership helps uh, ensure good and wise counsel. And it, in fact, it actually mimics uh, the, the, ruli, the ruling of God himself, where God himself rules out of his plurality, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons sit on the throne. And so eldering, leadership, our, our governing besides God has a plurality to it. Secondly, um, there's this beautiful truth in these types of passages that you see here, is that God actually invites us into this work, uh, which is always amazing to me. I mean, God's a pretty capable guy. If there was a capable guy, you know, God's pretty capable. And yet he still invites us into his work. Uh, how amazing is it? Uh, he doesn't need us, but he invites his people into it anyways, into uh, suffering people who have zero power, have zero authority in the culture, have no voice. What an amazing vision to show them. It's like, now you are hanging on crosses, but one day you will sit on thrones beside me. Now you wear crowns of thorns, but one day you will wear crowns of gold. Now your, your garments are, are tattered and soaked in blood, but garments of pure white wait for you. Though your fears may come to pass in this earthly life, they will not last. And the, the, the final image that this points us to is the climax here in verses five to six when we see the, the fullness of this. He says this, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Finally, you get this image that I think is, is meant to evoke in us Mount Sinai, right? This Mount Sinai moment where you get the fullness of presence of God on the mountain, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's smoke, and you have these seven spirits, which is, you know, not seven literal spirits of God. These seven is a number of fullness. He's talking about the, the fullness of the spirit of God dwells here in this space, which is represented in this, this thunder and lightning and smoke, like it was on the mountain when God visited Moses to give him the, the law. And uh, these things follow God's presence, his power, his majesty. This is true of him. And he is in heaven with his people full of power. And it says that at his feet is this glassy sea, which is kind of this interesting reference. For one, it's a reference to the temple and this bowl of water. But I think ultimately, this is him flexing his power and his authority over the, the, the leaders and rulers of the world. Because the, the warring nations of the earth are like the stormy seas, right? The calamities of the earth, the calamities in our own lives are often compared to the, the stormy unrest of the ocean like the storm of the flood that God once brought to earth. But before God, before his feet, God who is the great king over all, the great king of all kings, full of power and majesty, all the troubles of the world cease. All thrones bow to his. So much so that the, that the rough waters turn to a sea of glass. If you've ever like woken up on a, on, a, on a lake early morning, you know, the fog's kind of ruffling off the, off the lake. And it's just this glass, it's just this peace, this calm. That's what this is like. That's what the warring, turbulent nature of our lives is like before God. And the moment, you know, the, before the first century church, it was incredibly, inc incredibly turbulent, right? This was rough waters that they were, they were riding in. 
right? Rome's about to come and invade Jerusalem. They're about to destroy the temple. And while they're doing that, hundreds of Jews are gonna get crucified each day. Uh, they're gonna be massacred. There'll be a rampant turnover in leadership in Rome after Nero himself will commit suicide. Uh, this is unrest, which I've covered before, so I won't go into it further. But if there were a stormy sea, this would be the stormiest of them all. If you were gonna give in to fear, if you're gonna give, in, uh, give up hope, this would be the time to do it. And to this people, that were suffering in ways that we probably couldn't even imagine suffering, to this people, he gives them this vision, this future vision of peace, of rest, of stillness. Who among us doesn't long for peace, stillness, rest in our lives, glory? And this is what awaits them. The fullness of the presence of God, peace for, forevermore, grace and mercy forevermore. This is the hope that Jesus is inviting the people to come to see, to come to taste of. Like our fears, though understandable, your fears might even come to pass, but your fears are not your end. Heaven is your end, heaven on earth. A perfected church in a world made new with Christ ruling forever as our perfect king. This is our end, this is our future hope. The future before these people and before us is living forever in his presence. This is what God wants to put before you, to call you out of the fears that are so easy to, to give ourselves into. This is what he's calling you up into heaven to see. And as he calls you into this space to look, to see the grandness with our own eyes, he also invites us to respond to this great truth. And this is the second thing we see here is that Jesus not only invites us uh, to, to show us the hope of heaven, but he also invites us that we might join the worship of heaven. Jesus invites us to join the worship of heaven. And uh, you know, there's a couple aspects to this worship that I want to point out. And the first is this, that you know, everything that is happening here in this scene kind of mimics some of the temple worship of the Old Testament. And as John is brought into heaven, he's brought into the middle of this worship service that's happening. And it, it looks a lot like temples over the couple distinctives uh, and differences between temple worship and what we see here. The first is this, that in the temple and in the tabernacle, there was an inner holy room that only the high priest could enter because it was where God dwelled fully, right? The holy of holies. And then there was this outer court that, you know, normal folks like you and I could, could go and, and be. Um, but God's presence wasn't just fully there for everyone to go and sit in. So there's kind of this division of, of spaces and rooms and not everyone could go to every room. But uh, this doesn't happen here. There is no, um, in, this, in this scene, like God's presence is fully there everywhere. So there's no longer distinctive um, place. I think this is brought... Uh, into more clarity, even when we look at the uh, confusing bits here, which is verses 6b to 8, um, it says this, and around the throne on each side, the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So what are these crazy creatures that are being talked about here? Well, you know, there's another person that had a vision very similar to this, it was Ezekiel. 
Uh, Ezekiel had this wild vision, and uh, what he described is almost exactly the same thing that John's describing here, and he called them cherubim. So, he's with the, so who are the, the cherubim? Well, if you remember when they were building the, the temple and the tabernacle, the cherubim were these heavenly creatures that they'd even sew into their, their fabric, into the curtains. Uh, there were also two statues carved into the Ark of the Covenant, which that was the part where God dwelled in the Holy Holy. So in the holiest place of the temple, there was these two cherubim carved into the Ark of the Covenant. And actually when Solomon rebuilt the temple, they added two more cherubim to the inner room and in, in corners. And so it's trying to evoke in us these, this imagery of like, this is, this is the presence of God that we're in here. And, and these creatures, their role is that his praise would fill all creation. And so you, you get this scene where, where we're now invited into this holy place, where there's no separation between God and his people, and it's this powerful vision. Secondly, uh, the, the second difference between here and Old Testament temple worship was um, the, the posture of the, the, the high priests and the people. Um, it says over and over that the king is seated on the throne. This is the kingly priest. He's, he sat there. The 12 elders, it says they were seated. For us often, these are the kind of details that we just repash, like, cool, they're sitting down, thanks for the, the note, you know? Um, but for the Jewish people, they would have noticed the significance because the priests would never sit down uh, in the temple work because their work was never finished. They were always forever mediating between God and the people. Uh, and so it's significant for us that the that Jesus, our great high priest, is sitting down. His people are sitting down because the work is finished. This future is so sure that Jesus is sitting down. It is finished. Our worship is in and through the finished work of Christ. It is the thing that enables us to, to come before God and not get consumed. And as John sees this amazing worship service, he sees the church here at the end joining the cherubim, joining that heavenly choir. We see this in verse 10. It says, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is this beautiful picture of the church, glorified, perfected, now joining the great song of the cherubim, the never-ending song. Right, it says first they, they, they cast their crowns down, right? Their rule is nothing apart from Christ, right? This is where our earthly rulers and kings um, go wrong is when they think that they're Lord over all, that they can do whatever they please. The church uh, understands its, its rulership, its, its eldership, its kingship is actually under the authority of Christ. And it says they praise him. And what are they praising? They were, they're praising Christ for who he is, right? The God who made the heavens and earth, the creator of all. There is nothing in existence apart from him, which means he alone is worthy to be praised because he, it is he who made us. I think also what you see happening in this song uh, that's subtle, but I think it's there, is this a political allegiance is happening in this song. Remember, this is a day and age where, where the, they had Christians, Jews, except for the Jewish people, Christians and everyone is like, had to say Caesar is Lord. And here... They are saying, no, we can't say that. Who is Lord? God alone. Yahweh alone is our Lord. He is our King. And they pledge loyalty to him. He alone is worthy to lead us. And where every song of praise on our lips is actually, I think, a declaration of allegiance. 
It is to Christ alone we bow. It's to him alone we obey. The world may kill you for your allegiance, but that will just send us to this holy place all the sooner. And at the end of the day, I think that's the songs that we sing that, that tend to aim our faith, that walk with us. You know, if you show me a people's songbook, I, I will tell you what they actually believe. Our songs, our singing matters. Being a, a singing church matters. It's what I hope that St. Andrews continues to grow and become as a singing church. Because every time we gather and sing, it's not just us singing here, but we're joining an eternal song. A church that sings is a church that has hope. You know, sometimes singing is not always easy, especially when you're, you're having a bad day, you come in here, you're just not feeling it, that's the last thing you want to do is sing. But there's something that happens to you when you just drop the jaw and you let it out. You let it go. You know, you all have those moments where you, your favorite pop song comes on the radio and you just sing it loudly in the car and people drive by and think you're a crazy person. Um, it's like that. It's just something happens to you when you just drop your jaw and you let it out and you sing. Because this is how we're made. And it's in our singing that we're actually tuned to the, to the great eternal song that is going on. Uh, and this is what we're, we're called into. The invitation to join in the heavenly worship is not just a future reality for us either, but I actually believe this is our present reality every time we gather here in this place. Every call to worship is Jesus calling his people through the doorway to heaven. Jesus himself is the doorway, right? He's the great high priest who leads us in our worship, I think this is even alluded to in Hebrews 12 when it talks about the idea of the innumerable angels that are present with us. Right now, this room is filled with angels that you cannot see. We ourselves have gone through the doorway into heavenly places. When we gather and do this thing each week, we're being brought up into this place. And this is even our, our liturgy, our order of worship follows this, this process where Christ calls us to himself. He is our worship leader, the doorway to heaven, and he, he calls us up there, reminding us who he is. He is the one seated on the throne, reminding us of his work. He is the one a high priest mediating grace through confession and repentance, and, and which we remember in our confession each week. And there's no longer separation between rooms, but we can actually fully dwell with God as his people, coming into his very presence, dining at his table, responding in our own songs. This is what we've been invited to, to participate, even, even now. This vision in heaven is our present vision, present reality, even now when we worship. Now you, you might wonder, well, how does, how does this great vision, how does this actually help calm the fear and anxiety that we experience in a world gone awry? How does this actually help the people in the first century who are dying for this faith? What, what good is this? Because learning... To sing the song of heaven is the very thing that tunes our hearts to the deepest truths. That there is a world that's actually more real than this one. There is a world that is coming. There is a hope greater than our pain. And when we sing, we put that hope on our lips. And from our lips, it soaks into our hearts that we can actually believe this truth and hold on to this truth. And this truth goes out with us into the week. And we're called to participate in that hope now. You know, uh, there's a story uh, during World War II. Um, in, in Russia, there's, the Mennonite people were greatly persecuted people in this time. And uh, there's one story about a group of them that were being taken on a, on a train out in the middle of nowhere to be uh, killed. And the, the, the train actually stopped in the middle of nowhere, and scheduled. The soldiers ordered all the people off the trains, hundreds of them piling out in the trains, lining up in front of the, the car. And they 
picked up their guns to begin shooting these people one by one. And uh, one person in this group started singing. Wish I could remember the, the hymn that they started singing, but they just started singing. And then another person joined in, then another person joined in, and soon everyone in this group was singing this song. What an audacious thing to do, facing down a gun to sing. Uh, but this was a people who knew the true song. This is a people who knew their true hope. And actually these soldiers got so confused by their singing that they ended up putting them back in the train. They just went somewhere else and they ended up living. Our singing uh, is our battle cry. Uh, and this is what we're training in every Sunday when we come here and we sing and we remember the grace and remember the gospel of Christ. We wanna be a people who know our hope. We need to be a people who know our song because we're well-practiced in it. I mean, if you're someone here who struggles with fear, with anxiety, this is a call to sing the song of heaven. Come worship with God's people because it is here that you are training yourself in that hopeful song. So when that day comes, when fear is overwhelming, it comes to your mind again, you remember, there's a deeper truth than the pain that I feel. And it's the hope of heaven. May we be a people of great hope. Who, who learn these songs, who in the midst of fear are, are emboldened to sing, that we are faithful to the end. Amen. Pray with me. Holy God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word that gives us hope, your word that calms fears, your word that calls us to action. Father, I pray that you would stir in our hearts great hope with a great vision of what is to come. And may we be willing to taste of what is to come even now as we worship, participating in our future life today.